Welcome back to the Medical Republic. I'm Brentine Crimmins, and today I'm joined by Bianca O'Grady, who is the brilliant brain behind our magazine's daily COVID blog. Bianca, you've been blogging on the topic of COVID since March now this year. How's that been for you? It's been fascinating and terrifying and exhausting, and um, I'm. It's been an amazing opportunity to really stay on the very forefront of what's happening. At least, obviously, not on the front line, but. Um, you know, informationally speaking, on the forefront of what's happening in this pandemic. And that's certainly been, I guess, a form of strange privilege, but it is it is exhausting. And, you know, there's certainly been days when the stories have just been coming in thick and fast. And as I'm sure healthcare workers know as well, you know, the, the daily changes in policies and practices and advice and, you know, updates on restrictions and lockdowns. And it's... Um, it's been one, it's been amazing. It has been amazing. But I think it will be nice to have a break at the end of this year just for a little bit, which is a luxury that a lot of healthcare workers don't have. Now, in the past, we've had you on the podcast to talk about COVID and developments in the COVID Update podcast. But today, I want to talk to you about a bigger story that you've just published on excess COVID deaths. Yes, this was a really um, interesting story to write and I've been interested in this for a while ever since I think it was around April, the um, Australian Bureau of Statistics put out their first kind of data on what people had been dying of in the first six months of, of 2020 and there was a, I mean I don't know if it was statistically significant but it was certainly a bump in deaths that corresponded with the first peak of COVID infections in Australia, which really hit hit its peak in around late March. And there was a bump in what are called excess deaths. So this is basically the difference between how many deaths actually occur over a specific period of time and the number of deaths that would be expected to occur based on historical trends or in the case of the ABS data, based on the average of the, of the previous five years for that same period in time. And it's a small bump for Australia. Uh, so we're talking about, so for example, the, the week ending on the 31st of March, there were 2,824 deaths recorded in Australia for that week, um, which is 298 more than the average for that same week over the previous five years. So we're looking at 10% more of deaths, but that was 188 more deaths than the highest number of deaths recorded for that week in the previous five years. But that week, only 11 Australians officially died of COVID. So, which is not to say that all of those other deaths were COVID. So, um, but it's enough of a bump to say more people were dying in that week than, and quite a lot more people were dying in that week than one would normally have predicted. So what was going on? What are causing those excess deaths? So that's really where the idea for this story came from. When we talk about excess death and deaths directly attributed to COVID, uh, how do we draw the lines between the two and the deaths that could be related to other pandemic-related mortality? Well, this is really the tricky bit because, um, I mean, obviously our understanding of how COVID kills has been evolving rapidly over the course of this pandemic. I mean, when we began, when COVID first kind of burst onto the scene, it's a respiratory infection like so many other coronaviruses. And so the assumption was that people were dying, and and they were, they were dying of of ARDS, of acute respiratory distress syndrome, they were dying of respiratory failure. Um, But it became very clear 
fairly early on um, with things like people coming in with very high D-dimer levels, which is a marketer, marker of um, coagulation, um, and also autopsy reports uh, from um, other parts of the world where they've done kind of a kind of cohort series of autopsy reports. So not selecting patients, but actually doing autopsies on, on a sort of consecutive patients who died of severe COVID-19. And those were showing um, pulmonary emboli, uh, DVTs in patients who had no other clinical signs of that, had no history of that. So that has really raised the prospect that there is a lot of other physiological, severe physiological effects that COVID-19 has. And there's been concern around things, obviously, like the cytokine storm, people having this kind of massive um, inflammatory response. There's concerns about, is this aggravating conditions like diabetes, for example? Is it having any effect on uh, the risk of stroke? Obviously, if you've got coagulation issues, is there an increased risk of stroke? How is it impacting people with uh, with heart disease? And, the, you know, the association that we've seen between, for example, obesity and hypertension and death from COVID suggests that this isn't just a respiratory condition, that this is having really complex effects on the body. And so how that makes it difficult with respect to certifying deaths is there's likely to have been quite a few deaths, not perhaps not so many in Australia because we, were, we first of all, we weren't as slammed as some other parts of the world with COVID. Um, but also we've probably been a bit more, uh, a bit better at actually certifying deaths correctly and testing people as they come in. But in parts of the world like the US, where, I mean, there would be quite a significant number of people who are dying of stroke, who are dying of heart attack, who are dying of uh, diabetes complications and all of these other conditions or dying of PE, um, where the underlying contributing factor is actually COVID, but maybe they're not being tested, maybe they are being tested, but it's not being, you know, early on it might not have been considered to have been a relevant factor and so they weren't being certified as COVID-19 deaths. So that's, you know, that is one possibility that there were actually and still are a significant number of deaths that are where COVID is the precipitating factor. So if these people didn't have COVID, they wouldn't have died from this other condition. Um, the tricky thing is, it, it's very difficult to, first of all, know that that's the case because, I mean, maybe COVID did trigger it, maybe it didn't. It's very difficult to establish that. And, and the other challenge as well is just simply testing. Um, you know, for example, in, in India, they, they've got access to so few tests. There was some figure I saw, it was something like eight tests per thousand people for, uh, in terms of just the availability and the health infrastructure of testing. So there would be so many people in many, many parts of the world where they're just simply not being tested um, for SARS-CoV-2, the presence of SARS-CoV-2. And I should say, actually, when we were talking about excess deaths, it's worth putting in perspective. I mean, the Australian numbers were relatively small, but there was a study that was published in Nature Medicine that looked at 19 European countries as well as Australia and New Zealand. And they estimated that, and this was back in uh, from mid-February to May, so this was really very much the first wave, they estimated that more than 200,000 200, people died who then would have been expected had SARS not happened. So it was an overall 18% increase in mortality. Um, so put that in perspective, we always think of the 1918 H1N1, the Spanish flu pandemic as being, you know, this kind of, you know, the precedent setter for what we're going through today. The excess mortality in New York City during this pandemic was two and a half times higher than what was seen in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. 
that two and a half times more excess deaths have happened in New York in the first wave of this pandemic than happened back in 1918. And when you consider the quality of healthcare, not to mention the just general health levels of the population, like that for me really hammers home how big an impact COVID is having on just population death rates that wouldn't otherwise happen. And so, for example, in the UK, this study found that the um, observed deaths in England and Wales during the first wave were 37% greater than expected. So that's 100 additional deaths per 100,000 people. In Spain, they were 38% greater than expected. And when you look at the actual um, the number of excess deaths above and beyond the deaths that are recorded by co- as being caused by COVID, Overall, over these 21 countries, there was 23% greater deaths than um, the actual number of deaths recorded as being caused by COVID. These are not COVID deaths. The vast majority of these, yeah, a significant number of these excess deaths are not being recorded as COVID deaths. So when we look at those numbers of deaths that were not COVID deaths, is it mainly attributed to the overall burden uh, on the healthcare system generally, or are there other reasons as well? Obviously, a proportion of those deaths will be COVID deaths that weren't recorded as COVID deaths for whatever reason. But then what's also a major, likely to be a major player in this is the fact that when you have um, an overstressed health system, and we're seeing this playing out in in awful real time in the United States right now, when you have a a health system that's straining um, at the seams with COVID, then all of those other health conditions, people will still have strokes, people will still have heart attacks, people will still have, um, you know, diabetes, they'll still have asthma exacerbations. Um, Those things don't stop. And yet what we're seeing, and I was just looking earlier at Twitter and healthcare workers in um, hospitals, for example, in Arizona, saying we have no beds anywhere. They've got traumas coming in because they're not in lockdown, despite the fact that they have these ridiculously high rates. They're not in lockdown. So people are still out there having car accidents. They're out there getting shot. They're out there having all of these kind of normal day-to-day events, that which Australia actually had a real drop in those. So there were some really interesting stats that came out from um, emergency departments, for example, in Melbourne, that showed significant declines in presentations, uh, in trauma presentations to the emergency departments. I think it was Royal Melbourne. Um, or so you know we had a lot fewer of those kind of um, acute trauma presentations to hospitals Um, but what we still noticed even in Australia even with the health system you know managing to cope pretty well we still saw significant drops in presentations of a whole range of conditions to emergency departments and this was everything from septicemia to diabetes, um, uh, diabetes complications, um, obviously heart attack, stroke. Um, there were some really random ones in there. I mean, the septicemia one I found really interesting because, you know, these are not things that just stop because we decide not to get sick with them. These are conditions that will happen whether we want them to or not. And the fact that there was a massive drop in uh, presentation suggests that people were staying away from hospital. Um, and the problem with that is that uh, obviously you then get late presentation. So people turn up, you know, a few days after a stroke or they die at home. And so that perhaps is also a significant contributor to, um, to excess deaths is that people were simply not going to hospital. They were not going to their GP. Um, they were staying at home and they were getting worse and worse. And so when they eventually did present, 
um, or did get collected by ambulance, uh, it may have been too late. So the, the strain on health system is is also a, a significant, uh, significant factor. And then obviously delays on um, elective surgeries. Uh, most of the, I mean, in Australia, we did have provision for the most urgent categories of elective surgery during the lockdown, I think, for that surgery to happen, um, where it was potentially life-threatening. But in the United States, I think it's all of that stopped. So all of those surgeries, well, there's just simply no one to do the operations. There's, there's no beds. So uh, those are also conditions that would be contributing to this excess mortality. But what is interesting, though, and I, obviously we, we're talking about all of the bad news, but there is actually good news that has come out of this pandemic, um, and that's particularly around respiratory infections. So I, I think a lot of people would be familiar with the fact that influenza deaths have just gone through the floor. I mean, even just the number of influenza infections has gone through the floor. No one's getting flu because we're all staying home, we're washing our hands, we're wearing masks. And that's fantastic news, obviously, for influenza. But there's also the collateral benefit that's being seen for conditions, for example, COPD, because COPD, a significant number, it's something like 60% of acute COPD exacerbations are triggered by viral infections. And so we're not seeing those because people with COPD are probably being extra cautious because of uh, the risk from COVID, uh, but also just societally speaking, we're not, we're not sort of spreading as many respiratory viruses around. And so there's actually been a decline in deaths and, and uh, hospital presentations from COPD exacerbations. There's some interesting things that are going on, particularly in countries like Australia, where we have managed to get on top of this relatively quickly and without overstraining the health system. There is some in- interesting data, particularly coming out in the last few months and that's why I think the next lot of ABS data comes out uh, in a couple of days time. So it'll be very interesting to see what's happened since that first wave, since we've managed to get on top of things a little bit more. Um, There were trends suggesting that a lot of incidents, uh, a lot of death rates for more than just respiratory conditions were actually trending lower than average. So it's I mean, it's it's fascinating if you kind of obviously detach from the horror of what the world is going through. It's really interesting to see how these kind of interventions have a whole range of other both negative and positive effects on what we're dying from. And another positive note out of this that maybe we can talk about to finish on is that health system preparedness actually plays a massive role in all of this and in even looking at excess deaths. And Australia really has a lot to be proud of in this sense. Yeah, we really do. We have done, and I mean, you know, the credit for that goes to state governments taking swift action. It takes, the credit goes to to healthcare workers, to, well, it goes to everyone. It's a great big pat on the back that we did heed those warnings and we did act and we're seeing the benefits of that. And, And Victoria in particular has shown us what can be achieved when, Everybody takes those things seriously. But yes, the impact of the health system preparedness and resilience is really important. So this study in Nature Medicine that looked at the 21 countries and looked at excess death rates, they also looked at what might, um, what were some of the factors that might have influenced those death rates. And obviously the timing of lockdown is critical. So places that lock down sooner relative to where their infection rates were at, they had fewer deaths. So the sooner you get on top of it, 
then the better off you are. And, and again, I keep referring to the US, but I think it's, it's really as a case study of how not to handle things. And then the second thing is this idea of preparedness and resilience. And what's interesting about this is that it isn't just hospital capacity. It isn't just having more beds and more staff. It's also about being able to care for people in the community um, without needing them to go to hospital. So, you know, it is having a good GP network. It is having good, I guess, yeah, primary care and community-based care so that People who don't need to go to hospital don't have to go to hospital. They can be cared for at home. And I guess, you know, telehealth would have helped with that. But then it means that hospital is really for those who do need more intensive care. And it's also important that we are able to identify who needs to be in intensive care and who doesn't. And to get to that early so that we don't have the situation like, you know, would have happened, I think, in New York, where there was just ambulances everywhere and people were, were dying in their homes because they weren't going into hospital for whatever reason, whether that was fear or, or lack of access or cost. Yeah, I think hopefully we will learn so much coming out of this. And, and you know, Majid Azati, who's the lead author on the Global Excess Death Study, I mean, he really said, you know, wants this to be a way, advice, you know, to give us a sense of, well, these are the things that we need to do because pandemics will come again. And, and this one is certainly as showing no signs of being over. I mean, it's still accelerating in the rest of the world. So there is so much that we can learn in terms of how to handle this better and, and how to devise a system, health system that manages, as he said, the unusual as well as the usual, because it won't just be pandemics. It will be heat waves. It will be earthquakes. It will be droughts and bushfires. You know, this is a model for how we can have a resilient healthcare system no matter what the nature of the challenge. Bianca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your interesting feature with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.